All right, ladies and gentlemen, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman. And today we're going to be looking back at all the grades I gave out this season in my rapid reactions to do a bit of a recap, talk about Lee Smith's potential impending retirement, as well as talk about whether or not Cordero Patterson's success in 2021 proves that Arthur Smith is not to blame for Calvin Ridley's struggles. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman. been covering the Falcons for many years, formerly at FalcFans.com. RIP, still going strong on Twitter, at FalcFans. Putting up weekly content over at the Falcoholic, the SB Nation website for the Atlanta Falcons. And, of course, the host of this preeminent Locked On Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, right here on the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And today's episode of Locked On Falcons is brought to you by OnlineGambling.com, the place to be for all the latest gambling news and tips throughout the NFL playoffs. Visit OnlineGambling.com slash NFL to get the edge over the competition throughout this year's playoffs. So today's episode, we will be talking about my year in grades uh, talking a little bit about the daily grades or the weekly grades that I gave out on the podcast on the various rapid reactions, talking about the pass offense, rush offense, pass defense, rush defense, and of course, the all important special teams. And just giving a recap, looking at some of the highs and lows of the season, some of my memories of giving out those grades, just so you guys can get a overall portrait of sort of a, a season recap in terms of the performance of the various phases of the games. Um, and uh, then we'll get into a conversation about Lee Smith and his impending retirement. Uh, talking about what he provided to the Falcons this year and whether or not I was wrong in my initial criticism of that decision to acquire Lee Smith from the Buffalo Bills this offseason. So we'll get into that. And then we'll wrap up today's episode answering a listener question who basically said, uh, going back to last, what, Friday's episode where I talked all about Calvin Ridley and his situation uh, and was critical of Arthur Smith in terms of why Calvin Ridley was not as productive at the beginning of the season. He basically emailed me and said, well, Aaron, I heard what you said, but essentially Cordero Patterson proves that it's less of an Arthur Smith issue and, and more of a Calvin Ridley issue. So we'll unpack that by talking quite a bit about Cordero Patterson and exactly, you know, digging a little bit deeper on whether or not Arthur Smith did effectively unlock Cordero Patterson this season. So that will be what is in store on today's Locked On Falcons episode. Of course, I want to thank all of you guys that make Locked On Falcons your first listen each and every day. Of course, Locked On Falcons is free and available on a variety of podcast platforms, including Apple, Odyssey, Google, and Spotify. And of course, now free and available on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to the Locked on Falcons YouTube channel and give us a like when you do. So let's jump into recapping the uh, all the rapid reaction uh, grades, uh, looking at all five phases of the game. And this was the first year I started doing that, giving these grades out and just sort of in the moment, you know, they were kind of just like how I felt about it gut reaction, you know, within an hour or two after the game on these various things, nothing too scientific. 
Um, you know, if, if I went back and looked at some of these grades, I'd probably change them to maybe normalize them a little bit more because certainly I think there were some inherent biases that influenced them. And I think probably early in the season, I was probably a little softer on some of the grades that in retrospect later in the season, I was a little bit more willing to give really high grades or, or much lower grades later in the season once we had seen that body of work. But um, talking about the pass offense, the highest graded game I gave out was an A I gave to them after the Dolphins game, the lowest graded game was the F uh, in the Patriots game, you know, and if we count good grades as grades that were A's or B's and bad grades as D's or F's, I gave out four good grades this season. So four games had good grades uh, in terms of the pass offense and five games had bad grades. uh, And the average grade overall was about a C. So that reflects in that uh, with the vast majority of the games, you know, about eight of them earning grades in that C range. Uh, and, you know, the memories of the that Dolphins game was obviously Kyle Pitts cooking. The New England game uh, was a terrible performance for the Falcons offense. Um, I can't remember all the details of how terrible it was uh, for the passing attack, but that's the most memorable game because of the three interceptions late in the game by all three of the Falcons quarterbacks. Uh, moving on to the rushing offense, the highest graded games. I gave an A for both the Jacksonville and Buffalo games. The lowest graded game was the week nine game against the Saints, where I gave them an F for their running game. I surprisingly gave out six um, good g- grades in, in terms of the run offense this year and only five bad grades. But my perception of the run offense uh, being much worse than the pass offense this season uh, for at least the first part of the season is not reflected in that. And I think part of it is probably because I was a little softer on the run offense than I was on the pass offense because of the inherent biases that I have that the running game is not as important. So I, when the running game was just like decent, it was like, oh, well, that's that's good enough to give him like a B minus or something like that. And when the passing game is just decent, it's like, well, that's just a C or a C minus because you need your passing game to be more than decent uh, to have success in this league. So I think that was probably influencing why I seem to be a little bit more willing to give out positive grades uh, for the run offense. And notably, when I look at the passing offense, the four games that I did give out either an A or a B also happened to be the four games where I thought Matt Ryan played at a really high level, which was the Miami game, the Jets game, the first Saints game, and the Washington game. Um, right? Yeah. Uh, so, like, it's probably not a coincidence, although I think the lower grades aren't necessarily reflect uh, purely reflective of Matt Ryan. Those, particularly as we got later in the season, I think a lot of that was due to the poor protection that was dragging down those grades more so than Matt Ryan's performance. But I would say probably for most of the season, it felt like a lot of sort of C and C plus level performances from Matt Ryan this year in comparison to what we've grown accustomed to seeing him. So that was somewhat reflected in a lot of those C games, but um, you know, I, I can't remember exactly going back to the run offense, why I gave an F for that first saints game. I, I remember there were a couple of games at some point in the season where they were only getting like in, their success rate running the football was like in the teens or something. And so that might've been one of those games. I think there was a game was like 18% or something. And I gave them an F. Uh, And then the following week, I think I gave them a D minus, even though their success rate was basically the same. That's my recollection. So uh, I don't really have too much of a recollection of that. Moving on to the defense past defense, the highest graded games were a B that I gave for the jets game in the bills game. 
the Bills game primarily because of those turnovers uh, and the fact that, you know, even though they weren't necessarily stopping the Bills passing attack, but they were slowing it down. And I think I probably also gave him a boost because of A.J. Terrell's performance against Stephon Diggs in his first game and really his only game as a shadow corner, although maybe he did that this past week and I just didn't pay attention because Marquez Callaway didn't do anything. And then the Jets game, of course, because Zach Wilson was basically terrible for the first three quarters. And then the Jets game also was probably one of the two games that I can recall where the Falcons pass rush actually looked halfway decent. The Dolphins game was probably the only other game where the Falcons seemed to get some pressure on the quarterback uh, in that game. The lowest graded game for the pass defense with the D minus I gave against Dallas for obvious reasons. There were four games that were graded well in terms of A's or B's or three games that were graded poorly in terms of D's and F's for the pass defense, which again is a surprise to me that I, I guess I wasn't as harsh against the pass defense grading them as I probably think they should have been. I would have thought they would have been like five or six games, but I, I guess I was probably thinking, well, I, I don't want to give them, I don't want to be too harsh because they're, they're, you know, I'm probably grading on a curve to a certain extent because we knew they were bad. And so I just kept giving out C minuses or something like that. But uh, the average grade for the past defense was a C. I don't know if I mentioned it for the run offense. It was a C plus for the average grade for the season. Uh, moving on to the run defense, highest graded games were a B minus I gave for the Saints, the first Saints game and a B minus for the second Panthers game. And Notably, the lowest graded games was the F I gave for the first Panthers game and the F I gave for the second Saints game, which was this past Sunday in week 18. Those two high graded games were the only two grades that the run defense earned a B or higher uh, or B minus or higher. And then there were six games where the uh, run defense earned a D or an F grade. So six bad games. And the average grade was a C minus. And it was it was bordering on D plus territory, but there were just enough of those sort of C level games that would just push it on the C minus half uh, versus the D plus half on terms of that. And we know the run defense, you know, based off of these grades was clearly the biggest weakness of the team, um, which is an interesting statement to make, I, I guess. Um, so, you know, that will probably be a priority. And, and so for all you Jordan Davis fans, and I'm recording this before the national championship game. So either he had a monster game or he was at a, a reasonably quiet game. So uh, I don't know if, if the hype on Jordan Davis is going to only get higher for Falcon fans wanting him uh, to come in and fix their run defense. But that is a conversation that we can unpack at a later date. Uh, moving on to the all-important special teams. Highest graded game was the A I gave them against the 49ers. The lowest graded game was a D- minus against Washington. There were nine uh, good games for the, the special teams and only two bad games with poor grades. And the average grade was a C+. Plus. And again, this was a C plus bordering on B- minus territory. But essentially... There were enough middling games, and, and Thomas Morstead's arrival came too late in the season to fully push it into B-minus territory. Basically, once Morstead stepped on the field in Week 12 against Jacksonville, those final seven games of the season, they averaged a B-minus or they got a B-minus or higher every single game, and their average grade across those seven games was a B-plus. But prior to that, their first you know ten games of the season, uh, they were average grade was a C, and it was all over the place. It was always up and down. So uh, special teams, you know. Thomas Morstead really skewed the because we knew Koo was good. Um, you know, Avery Williams, I thought, played better in the second half of the season, which was contributing to why the, the special teams improved. And the coverage units, now that they actually had decent punting, uh, actually, you know, looked competent as opposed to what they were earlier in the season uh, where they struggled in that regard. So 
there you guys have it. The recap uh, for the Falcons offense, defense, and special teams. Uh, pass offense was a C. Run offense was a C plus. Pass defense was a C. Uh, run defense was a C minus, and the special teams was a C plus, bordering on a B minus. So uh, th- there you have it. Uh, a bunch of middling, slightly above average, and below average performance uh, for the Falcons across the roster, which I think. Properly, you know, that's what you would expect out of a, a team with a seven and 10 record, just a whole bunch of like C's, C minuses and C pluses. Uh, so that seemed fairly accurate in that regard. So we will move on and talk a little bit about uh, Lee Smith potentially retiring. Uh, potentially the first of many uh, departures that may occur this offseason. Uh, and we'll get into that and, and potentially how the Falcons can replace Lee Smith this offseason, whether there's an in-house candidate or have to go out there and get somebody else who can provide that stellar blocking that Lee Smith uh, provided this season. But before we get into all of that, guys, you know, speaking of retirement, you know, that's a big life change particularly for a football player, but I'm sure you guys underwent some big life changes this past year, and they usually have tax implications. And people usually think those uh, unusual circumstances tend to complicate taxes, but TurboTax live experts are here to make things easy. Maybe you were a full-time employee who decided to freelance this year, and now you need some advice on how to file as a contractor. Maybe you work in one state, but live in another, and you need help reporting your income. Maybe you started driving a rideshare after your nine to five job. TurboTax Live has experienced experts dedicated to answering all your tax questions and finding every deduction for you. And you can talk to a TurboTax Live expert from your phone without ever having to leave your house. Whether you got married, had kids, or changed careers, TurboTax Live experts are ready to help you with your unique tax situation and get the best tax outcome. To TurboTax Live experts, an interesting life can mean an even greater refund. Visit TurboTax.com to learn more. You do your thing. They've got your taxes. Intuit TurboTax Live. So Lee Smith seemingly retired because Kyle Pitts seemingly let the cat out of the bag. Over that, I think it was on his Instagram, basically saying happy retirement or whatever the case was. So nothing official that, but uh, we'll just sort of assume that that is the case. And then if you listen to his mic'd up against the Bills, it kind of, you can kind of read between the lines. It didn't sound like he was a guy that intended to play for much, much longer, sort of seemed to be very nostalgic uh, about his and, and other people's playing careers in that mic'd up segment. And I only listened to maybe like six of the mic'd ups this year, but that seemed to be among like the better ones that I listened to this season. So let's assume for now that Lee Smith does eventually call it quits, which was certainly something that was uh, a, a potential, if not strong possibility, but a uh, p- possibility when we first acquired him. And that puts a wrap on a really solid 11 year NFL career with three teams, six with Buffalo, four with the Raiders, and one, of course, with Atlanta. And what's interesting about Lee Smith is I do remember scouting him when he came out of Marshall back in 2011. Uh, and that was a 2011 draft that I did a lot of homework on. I, I wrote up like 300 plus scouting reports uh, for that draft. And uh, I'll read you some of my original notes about Lee Smith. And I feel like I, I nailed it in terms of my evaluation of him. Um, I wound up giving him a late round grade um, and, you know, my old grading system basically didn't necessarily distinguish between rounds, but it was basically a draftable grade, which based off of that was like a six or seven round pick. So 
here's here's the sort of the blurb I had about Lee Smith. It's not a smooth athlete when getting a release. Looks like an undersized offensive tackle. Has nice hands and will fight for extra yards. Shows a real mean streak as a blocker, playing beyond the whistle on a few occasions. Has the size you like as a blocker and has a mean disposition. His hands are good enough that he can be a decent outlet receiver, but he's not a guy that will catch more than five to ten passes a year in most offenses. Could even see him potentially bulking up and moving permanently to the offensive line. Um, so, you know, I think he came into the league at like six, six, two sixty five. So he was a guy that, you know, then it wasn't crazy to think that he could put on like 30 pounds and become a, a halfway decent offensive tackle, uh, given, you know, that tight end level athleticism. So, um, you guys know that I was pretty critical of the acquisition to get Lee Smith, not because I was upset about giving up a conditional seventh round draft pick or whatever it was. Uh, it just, to me, given how cap restricted the Falcons were at the time, it didn't make a ton of sense to go out there and spend 2 million plus on a blocking tight end. Obviously the Falcons sort of reworked his contract and got his you know, the cap hit down to like $1.8 million. But for, you know, my money, that still was like a million more than they needed to spend on a blocking tight end. Uh, and, given that basically the Falcons were out there trying to sign, you know, starters uh, for basically veteran minimum contracts, that $1 million uh, of, you know, quote unquote wasted on Lee Smith was basically one less starter at potentially a bigger position of need. And that was the main reason why I was critical of that trade, not because of what the Falcons gave up. And I still kind of stand by, you know, at least in principle uh, in terms of that criticism of that move. But I certainly think Lee Smith outperformed my expectations. I mean, especially my initial expectations when we acquired him was like, Oh, he's going to make the team or whatever the case may be. He's going to be a cap cut, a camp cut or something like that. Um, Yes. And that was exactly how I said it. that exact same voice. And obviously as the off season unfolded, he proved it showed that he clearly was going to have a role with this team. And I think in hindsight, and I don't think this was the plan at the time, although maybe some people will paint it as that, but you know, cause obviously they didn't make this decision in late February when they acquired Lee Smith. But I think certainly uh, having Lee Smith on the roster and eventually when they wound up getting Kyle Pitts, he proved to be a very effective mentor for him and a valuable mentor for him. So kudos to Lee Smith uh, for a solid year in Atlanta and kudos to Lee Smith for outperforming my expectations. It's not something that happens particularly often. Uh, I'm being sarcastic for those of you that do not get sarcasm, which I am finding apparently a lot of people do not understand sarcasm on the internet. But um, as far as what's next for, you know, the Falcons, you know, in a post Lee Smith world, that's how the world gets divided pre lease, you know, Lee Smith and post Lee Smith. Um, my expectation is they do have a potential in-house option in Parker Hesse. Uh, I thought in limited opportunities, Parker Hesse did a really good job as a blocker this year. So I feel like you can sort of kind of pencil in Parker Hesse as the number three tight end to fill that Lee Smith role on the depth chart. Um, you know, I think the real question at the tight end position is going to be potentially who replaces Hayden Hurst at the number two guy, uh, because, you know, my expectation is Hayden Hurst will not be back. And you look at Hayden Hurst's uses this year, about 45% of his snaps this year, somewhere around there. Uh, he was asked to block. So roughly half of his snaps, he was asked to be a blocker. Um, and I think that's kind of the role that Arthur Smith envisions for that number two tight end, given Pitts' ability as a pass catcher. Um, so I, I do think the Falcons will kind of look for a number two tight end that is less of a dynamic receiving threat, but more of a blocker first, which was not Hayden Hurst's game. We know that Hayden Hurst, while we wouldn't call him dynamic in terms of the passing game, uh, certainly was a more valuable pass catcher than he was as a blocker. Um, and I think the Falcons would 
prefer to see that kind of flip where a guy that can contribute in the passing game, but maybe that's not where his calling card is going to be. Uh, and if he's a guy that has to go out there and for 15 to 20 snaps a game, be asked to block, he can do that at a competent level. So I think that's probably going to be the priority for the tight end position uh, this offseason. And we'll see how big a priority that is for the Falcons offense moving forward. But that's a conversation that we can have when we get to the year in positional review for the tight end position. But the rest of today's Locked on Falcons podcast will be answering a listener question or responding to a listener question or a listener criticism about, you know, me being overly critical of Arthur Smith uh, in regards to his usage or misusage of Calvin Ridley this year and Cordero Patterson, you know, being a prime example of that art. The problem isn't Arthur Smith's offense. The problem is more uh, Calvin Ridley. And I obviously have a counter to that. So we'll get into that as we continue today's Lockdown Falcons. But before we do, I want to, again, thank you guys for making Lockdown Falcons your first listen. I always have recommendations for what your second listen should be. And again, I'm recording this before the national title game, but you know, obviously there's going to be a reaction to whatever happens to the Georgia Bulldogs. And of course you can find that out on the Lockdown Bulldogs podcast, or if you're one of the handful of Falcon fans that, you know, are rolling with the tide, uh, you can find it on Locked On Bama as well as Locked On SEC. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of coverage of this game on the various Locked On podcast networks. And of course, you can find them all uh, available on the various podcast platforms. And Locked On Bulldogs is available on YouTube as well. So, guys, you know, as you're listening to this, many of you may be stuck in bumper to bumper traffic on I-85, uh, you know, in the Atlanta area and you wind up burning through a ton of gas. Well, I know you want to get a ton of cash back for all the gas that you're spending, you know, all the money that you're spending at the pump and all the gas that you're burning up in traffic. And you now can with a new app called Get Upside. Get Upside is a free app. There's no catch. You get 25 cents back up to 25 cents back per gallon every time you fill up. And over time, that kind of savings can really start to add up. Uh, some people making as much as two to $300 a month in cash back would get upside and you can get direct payments into your bank account. You can get them uh, into a PayPal account. I like to get them on an Amazon gift card. There's so many other ways that you can get that cash back. And now when you open an account, uh, on get upside and use our special promo code touchdown, you get a bonus 25 cents back per gallon on your first fill up. That's up to 50 cents back per gallon. So don't pay full price at the pump anymore. Download the free get upside app available at the app store or on Google play and use our promo code touchdown. When you sign up, that's get upside promo code touchdown to start saving every time you fill up. So uh, when you guys are looking for the edge, when it comes to getting better gas mileage or getting more return, on the, uh, you know, you go to get upside, but you, maybe you're looking for the edge in other ways. And that includes giving that uh, gambler edge. And you can do so by heading over to the website, onlinegambling.com. And that website is inspiring you to beat the odds throughout the playoffs. They'll provide the best NFL tips, news, and more to help make your bets as informed as ever. You just go to onlinegambling.com, check out all the latest NFL playoff news and tips so that you can get that edge. Don't make emotional decisions with your hard earned dollars, make informed decisions with information sourced by experts by visiting online gambling.com. Make sure you visit them before placing your bets to double check. Make sure you visit online gambling.com slash NFL for all the latest gambling news and tips to give you the edge throughout the playoffs. Remember online gambling.com slash NFL to make the most of this year's playoffs. 
So we're wrapping up today's Locked on Falcons with a listener question from Jim C. He sent in via email uh, and he said, I listened carefully to your episode devoted to the Calvin Ridley saga. Nice job. Thanks, Jim. Uh, But I'm just not buying your argument that his mediocre play at the beginning of the season was due to Arthur Smith not being able to figure out how to use him. One look at Cordero Patterson says differently. Coaches with the Vikings, Raiders, Patriots and Bears were unable to figure out how to use him. Yet Arthur Smith did immediately. Earlier in the season, you questioned Calvin Ridley's football choices after he opted to race to the sidelines after a catch instead of run for extra yards while facing closing defenders, something he would have done unhesitantly in previous years. That is what won't be discussed, his lack of interest. You could almost see him become more indifferent as those five games progressed, perhaps related to his mental health woes, maybe just maybe Arthur Smith saw that and realized getting Ridley to play to his potential was a lost cause. Just a thought. Um, let's talk about Cordero Patterson and Arthur Smith's uh, usage of him. I don't, I am not one of these people that believes Arthur Smith deserves that much credit for Cordero Patterson's breakout season. And I think if even if you are willing to give Arthur Smith the bulk of that credit, I still think it kind of illustrates exactly the point I'm, I'm talking about. So, like, when you look at how the Falcons utilize Cordero Patterson in the passing game, you know, leaving aside the running game because there's not a whole lot to conclude from that. He just was a typical running back. Um, you know, most of Patterson's production this year came after the catch, which is the norm for running backs. Uh, 69% of his receiving yards this year came after the catch. He averaged 7.3 yards after the catch per reception, had an average depth of target of 4.1. That average depth of target compared to wide receivers would be at the very low end of the league, like last and bottom of the league, uh, but is extremely high end for the running back position compared to other running backs in that regard. And that sort of speaks to Patterson's hybrid role as sort of, you know, a high end pass catching running back, a low end pass catching receiver, Um, And then when you sort of look at where he lined up when he ran his route, about 40% of his routes run this year came out of the backfield. 3.5% came in line, although uh, if you're not recalling those instances, it kind of stopped in like week nine was the last time he did that. 21% came out of the slot and 36% came out wide. So about 57% of his routes this year came as a, as what we consider a wide receiver. But, you know, let's talk about what types of routes that Patterson was asked to run, you know, and, you know, obviously as a running back, a lot of that was just out of check downs out of the backfield, screen passes, those sorts of things. As a wide receiver, a lot of it was like hitches. And, and for those of you that don't know what a hitch route is, basically it's like, uh, you know, you run three to five yards on the field, turn around, and the quarterback's going to throw you the football. Uh, then you also have like the fades and go balls, those vertical routes. You saw the fade on the touchdown he had against Kendall Fuller in the Washington game. You saw two, you know, fades and go balls in that week nine game uh, against the the Saints. You saw the deep post against Washington as well, I believe. Um, you know, but outside of that, those handful of sort of those vertical routes, most of his targets were primarily just running short routes, whether it's out of the backfield or out of the slot or whatever the case may be. And it was designed to get him the ball quickly and let him make plays after the catch. And he did an excellent job of doing that. Um, but we knew that, you know, that's not something that Arthur Smith figured out, right? We've known that that's what Cordero Patterson is great at because it's proven every time he touches the ball on a kickoff return that he's really great with the ball in hand. The reason why he was a number one uh, draft pick out of Tennessee was because people looked at how dynamic he was with the, with the football and said, well, well, we can teach him how to run routes. We can teach him all these various things. And that didn't necessarily work out. And that's 
generally been the trend over the years. Tavon Austin's a, another example of a player like that that was great with the ball in his hands, but wasn't necessarily a true route runner uh, in that case. So I think, you know, if you're going to give Arthur Smith credit for Cordero Patterson's usage, it's not how he utilized him. It's the fact that he utilized him as much as he did. And that's probably the biggest thing that changed from Cordero Patterson's usage uh, in Atlanta versus where how he was utilized or how much he was utilized in Minnesota, Chicago, New England, et cetera, the Raiders, et cetera. Um, but before I would sit here and say, oh, Arthur Smith is this genius that figured out how to utilize Cordero Patterson and nobody else did. How much of Cordero Patterson's usage this year was by design and how much of it was out of necessity, right? Remember that first month of the season when the Falcons offensive line was struggling and the Falcons were struggling to generate explosive plays reliably, a lot of their success, particularly in the explosive play department, was just Matt Ryan because he was constantly under fire from uh, particularly in those first three games. Um, was just kind of checking the ball down and, and Patterson just, you know, making plays and creating after the catch. Um, you also factor in that, you know, Ridley, uh, Kyle Pitts did not necessarily get off to a fast start. Russell Gage obviously uh, did had zero catches in week one, uh, you know, had more in week two, but primarily was just asked to be a screen and then got hurt in week two and then missed like the next three games. So that first month of the season, you know, they weren't getting a whole lot of production from other playmakers in their offense, not to mention Mike Davis wasn't that productive at the running back position. So it, it kind of is worth noting that Cordero Patterson didn't out carry Mike Davis until week five of the season. In the first four games combined, Mike Davis had 49 carries and Patterson had 27. So, you know, given Patterson's hot start the season, the point I'm trying to make is, was that because of Arthur Smith always intended that or is it because when the Falcons offense was struggling as much as it did in the first month of the season, it was basically Patterson was the one guy that was standing out as making plays. And then basically five to six weeks into the season, Arthur Smith decided like, Oh, I need to get this guy the ball more. Um, Cause again, if you go back to, I remember talking with Falcon fans, you know, first three or four games of the season, it's like, we need to get, you know, my, my boy, Alan Sterk was like, you know, Cordero Patterson is such ball like 20, 25 times a game or whatever the case may be. That's what some people were saying, like in late September and, and early October. So I don't know if I want to sit here and be like, Arthur Smith figured this out. And it was just kind of like, well, is it, was that always the plan or was that just kind of what needed to happen in order for this offense needed, desperately needed someone to provide a spark. And Patterson was the guy that stepped up to do that, you know, and then, when we talk, when we look at that and compare it to Arthur Smith's past in Tennessee, and we look back at that Titans offense, and we note that Patterson is great with the ball in his hands. We note that about the two primary playmakers in that Titans offense with Derrick Henry and, and AJ Brown. You know, AJ Brown was one of the best after catch receivers in the NFL in 2019 and 2020. And of course, Derrick Henry was famous for turning what 90% of the running backs in the NFL would basically be a, a four or five yard run you know, bouncing a play, shedding a tackler and turning that into a 30, 40 plus yard game. So when I look at Arthur Smith's offense and his body of work in three years as a play caller, two years in Tennessee, one year in Atlanta, are we talking about a guy that's offense is elevating lesser talent? Or are we talking about an offense that is being elevated by superior talent? And at least when you, particularly when you focus on the explosive plays and you guys know how much that matters to me, and it does seem a lot more like 
the latter where it's superior talent elevating his offense. And I think that kind of applies to this season where it was guys like Pitts and Patterson that were their primary playmakers. Um, you look at the monster games that Kyle Pitts had. A lot of it was, you know, him be- being a dude, as they say, and, and beating the guy that's lined up across from him on, on a deep route or on a crosser route or whatever the case may be. And it's not to say that Arthur Smith deserves zero credit for that. He does deserve some credit for that. But whether we're talking about Pitts or Patterson or A.J. Brown or Derrick Henry, it just kind of is like more of like, I'm just better than the guy covering me or I'm better than the guy trying to tackle me and I'm, you know, get me the ball and I'll make a play. Um, and that's not something that you can necessarily put anybody in uh, and expect them to be as effective. And you can use, you know, the, the first and second Saints game, you know, this most recent game against the Saints. Like you go back to the first game where Patterson had those two big catches uh, in the game, one early and one, obviously this sort of big one late in the game that helped them win the game. And then the Falcons try to use, utilize Russell Gage that same way in this week 18 game when Patterson was out of the lineup due to, you know, whatever he was dealing with his ankle injury or whatever the case may be. Russell Gage was not nearly as effective at that because Russell Gage is not Cordero Patterson when it comes to, you know, going and getting food. He's not 6'2", 220 pounds and doesn't have, you know, Cordero Patterson's uh, type of ball skills to go win in those sort of contested catch situations. And that's the point is to illustrate that you just can't put anybody in that role. And that's kind of the point I'm making about Calvin Ridley. Calvin Ridley is not that type of player. That if you want Calvin Ridley to go out there and be a dude uh, and just, you know, take the ball on the crossing route and turn, you know, a 15 yard crosser or a dig route into a 40 yard game like A.J. Brown did on a regular basis. That's not Calvin Ridley. Now, Julio Jones is more that type of receiver. Um, if you're expecting Calvin Ridley to just, you know, take the top off of a defense and throw, you know, deep posts and deep go balls uh, to him and he's going to go get the football like a AJ Brown, like a Corey Davis, like a Julio Jones, like a Mike Williams, or even a Cordero Patterson or Kyle Pitts. That's not really him. You know, Ridley's game is about precision. It's about timing. It's the comeback routes. It's the out patterns. It's the corner routes. It's the double moves. It's that's where Calvin Ridley wins. Again, you can go on YouTube right now and go and look at those late season highlights, uh, you know, over the last, you know, four to six weeks of the season and just go watch the highlights and go and make note of all the plays that Calvin Ridley's making. It's not him going out there and being a dude. It's timing based routes and precision base routes. That's how he's generating his explosive plays. And early in the season, you know, he was struggling to do that because a lot of what Arthur Smith was asking him to do was run these sort of shallow drags and and turn up field and, and, you know, turn a five yard throw into a 20 plus yard game. He did that a couple of times this season, but for the most part, that's not really where his bread is buttered. Um, And so, like, I'm not trying to sit here and say, like, that makes Arthur Smith bad at his job or whatever, or it's bad to have an offense built that way where you need the Derrick Henrys and the Kyle Pitts and the A.J. Browns and the Cordero Pattersons, et cetera. Um, But the problem that comes when you have that type of offense is what happens when you lose a guy, whether it's a mental health check or whatever the case may be, or an injury or whatever the case may be, that you lose a guy for a couple of games. How do you replace him? As I pointed out, the Falcons couldn't replace that Cordero Patterson-like presence, or certainly not a Kyle Pitts-like presence, as he was dealing with injuries. And that's part of the reason why the Falcons' offense looked considerably worse in Week 18 against the Saints, against basically the same defense um, as they did in Week 9, right? And then you go back to those Titans' Uh, offenses, you know, like it wasn't like they were spreading the ball around it. You know, it was basically the Derrick Henry, AJ Brown, Corey Davis show. And then, 
sprinklings of John o. Smith, sprinklings of Adam Humphrey, sprinklings of Anthony Ferkser and other players and, and, and whoever else, right? You go back to John o. Smith's first year as a starter in 2019 under Arthur Smith, you know, there were like eight games that year where he had zero or one catches and he's at least theoretically supposed to be like the fourth weapon in their offense after Henry Brown and, and Corey Davis. And, you know, you, that's a guy that's an afterthought where half of your games, he's not even touching the ball, you know, more than one time. Um, and so like the point of that is like Arthur Smith's offense. When we look at his body of work, when he's able to funnel the ball through, you know, two or three guys, two or three big time playmakers, two or three dudes, his offense seems to work. But if it's asking to, to, to uh, get the ball to other guys and, and not asking those guys to just go out there and make a play like Cordero Patterson, like Pitts and Henry and et cetera, do his offense doesn't seem to be nearly as effective. And the point of this is not to sit here and say like Calvin really deserves zero criticism for his, you know, poor performance early in the season, the drops. And as you mentioned, you know, the, the poor decisions after the catch certainly deserve criticism, but by and large, it seems like if Calvin Ridley's not working in your offense, the problem isn't Calvin Ridley, at least based off of what we see with Arthur Smith compared to Dirk Cutter and Steve Sarkeesian and going back to his days in Alabama, it seems to be more with your offense. And it looks like the, the, the quote unquote problem again, air quotes problem with Arthur Smith's offense is like he needs dudes. And the reason why that's important guys is this gets back to the point I've been making for like what a month or two now on this podcast, that when we talk about team building and we talk about the lack of talent, right? You're not going to find dudes. You're not going to find Derek Henry's and AJ Brown's and Kyle Pitts's and Cordero Patterson's in like round three and four, right? If you, if your offense is predicated on having dudes, right? If you get what I'm saying, like finding those guys after the first round and, you know, maybe in the second round, because obviously Brown and Henry were second round picks. Like it's going to be hard to find those guys. And if your offense is only successful when you have those types of dudes, it's going to be hard to build up this offense. And so when we talk about this team and like, oh, we need to invest our resources in the defense and we need to use our early round picks on the offensive line and all these other positions and whatnot, which I, again, not saying that the Falcons shouldn't do those things, but if that leaves us to basically supplementing our, our skill position, particularly at the running back wide receiver and tight end positions with like day three picks, you know, and if Arthur Smith's offense is only effective with quote unquote dudes, like you're not going to find many dudes on day three of the draft. And if you do, it's usually going to be guys that have major character concerns or major injury question marks, medical red flags or whatever the case may be. Uh, and you're just basically biding your time until eventually that red flag blows up in your face or whatever the, the case may be. So like, this is what I'm talking about where it's like, you need to have a situation where you just are basically lucky and you can find some dudes on day three, or you're going to have to have a situation where you're going to now have to invest those early round picks that should be going to the defense, should be going to the offensive line or other places, potentially going to quarterbacks in the future at some point in time. You know, you're going to have to invest those positions into some dudes. Uh, and that means that then you're going to have to invest at those positions with day three picks or whatever the case may be. And again, this is to me the dilemma. Again, I'm not trying to paint this portrait of the Falcons are doomed or anything like that, but I'm sitting here saying that at this current rate, I don't see how the Falcons can navigate this situation successfully because they're going to neglect something, right? Like either Arthur Smith has to basically figure out how he can get more out of Calvin Ridley type of players and, and not just basically his offense only is effective when it's running through dudes, 
or you're going to have to either hit on some draft picks, hit on some cheap free agents or whatever the case may be, or whether it's the offense or the defense, you're going to have to really do a great job developing those th- day three talents and, and have more success pick, you know, picking on day three than any other team in the league or whatever the case may be. Because if, if you just sort of fall into the, the same norm where, you know, Arthur Smith's offense continues to be what it is, um, the, the Falcons don't are especially not more effective picking on day three or day two or whatever of the draft than your average NFL team then it's hard for me to see where this team gets better at. Or again, it's not to sit here and say they're doomed to fail, but it's just kind of, I think we're just going to continue to see just sort of more middling football teams. Like we've seen over the, by and large over the last four years, which is a lot of seven win, eight win sort of teams, maybe a nine win season sprinkled here or there, which is fine. Again, there's worse places to be as an organization than being a middling football team. But we're going to be sitting here. I don't know if the whole, like they lack talent narrative is going to hold much water in the future. If basically we're talking about, well, they don't have a Julio Jones or they don't have a Derrick Henry, or they don't have an AJ Brown guys that are like, you know, top fives at respect, arguably top five at their respective positions. And it's like, if, if that's what you need in order for your offense to work, then like, I don't think the problem is we don't have enough of those guys. I think the problem is your offense because most NFL teams don't have top five guys across their roster at their skill position. You know, I, I just, I think if that's what you're, we're hinging our success on, then that's not a great place to be as an organization. So for me, I put more of that on the head coach and necessarily on, you know, Hey, Calvin Ridley, you're bad because going back to what we talked about on Friday, you're not a top five receiver. Oh, what you're like the 13th best wide receiver in the NFL. Well, that's just not good enough. Like that, that seems ridiculous to me. Or it's like, you know, if we get the 13th best running back in the league, well, that's just not good enough. You can't succeed with a Josh Jacobs in this offense. You need a Derrick Henry. You need a Nick Chubb. And it's like, okay. I I mean, like, is that the problem with the player or is that the problem with the offense? So that's where I kind of, I'm at Jim. I just kind of think like, yeah, even if you want to sit here and say, well, Arthur Smith figured out how to use Cordero Patterson. Okay. Why, how, and why did he figure out how to use Cordero Patterson? Is it because he actually figured out how to utilize Cordero Patterson or is just Cordero Patterson a dude? So that's the question, uh, you know, you guys can chomp on, uh, for the rest of the day. You know, you know, my answer, I just explained it. Uh, so, uh, that was where we'll leave it guys on that question. Of course, if you want to be like Jim and, uh, be argumentative, how dare you, Jim, uh, you can send in your questions on, uh, email like Jim did to lockdownfalcons at mail.com. Of course, you can leave a comment here on the lockdown Falcons YouTube channel, or you can hit me up on Twitter uh, or Facebook at lockdown Falcons. So guys, that's going to do it for us here on today's Locked On Falcons. Of course, check out the Locked On Bets podcast uh, to get Lee Sterling's, the handicapping experts, daily picks, his blowout specials, and of course, his lock of the day. And just because football season may be winding down, it doesn't mean that Lee's not going to find you other ways to save betting on some other sports each and every day on the Locked On Bets podcast, free and available on a variety of podcast platforms. So guys, that is going to do it for us here on Locked On Falcons. Uh, we'll be talking more all 22. If I have any thoughts on the film tomorrow, as well as listen to question, hopefully we'll have some guests later in the week. I haven't booked those uh, or at least confirmed those quite yet, but uh, that's the plan upcoming on Lockdown Falcons. Appreciate it till then.